Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. When discussing etiologies of hearing loss, we often think of the invisible causes. Things like degradation of cochlear hair cells, otitis media, auditory neuropathy, the list goes on. But for congenital malformations of the outer ear, like microtia and atresia, the cause is oftentimes something we can see. But how do microtia and atresia affect hearing, and what can we do to better provide access to sound for individuals with microtia and atresia? Today's guest is here to explain all of that and more. Meredith Berger has been the director of Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech in New York for 14 years. Clark is a national nonprofit organization that teaches children who are deaf or hard of hearing to listen and talk. Prior to joining Clark, Meredith was the Deaf and Hard of Hearing Educational Specialist at New York Eye and Ears Institute and Cochlear Implant Center from 2005 to 2008. Her previous experiences include working as an itinerant teacher and a classroom teacher for students who are deaf or hard of hearing and as an early intervention provider. Meredith received a Bachelor in Education from SUNY at Buffalo State College and a Master's, sorry, not a Master's, two Master's degrees, one in Deaf Education and another in Educational Leadership from Canisius College. In 2017, Meredith began her doctoral studies at Teachers College, Columbia University to find answers to her own questions on the needs and outcomes of children who are deaf or hard of hearing, particularly those with microtia and atresia and their families. In addition to presenting on the educational needs of children with hearing loss, she also has co-authored pieces on the clinic-school relationship and was a recent contributor to the Journal of Early Hearing Detection and Intervention, their monograph on telointervention. Meredith is on the New York State Eddy Advisory Board and is a member of the Children's Hearing Institute's Medical and Educational Advisory Board. Meredith is also the parent of two amazing children, one of whom has bilateral microtia and atresia. Just a couple of financial disclaimers. I'm the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Ms. Berger received compensation for her contributions to today's presentation. I am so excited to have Meredith Berger here. She is a leader in the realm of microtia and atresia, and her work at the Clark School has been so beneficial to so many kids across our country. Thank you so much for joining me, Meredith. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So why don't we just get started? Every time I have a guest on who has an amazing, amazing is one more, but also prolific career, listeners are always so curious, what was their career path? And we broke down a little bit of that through this, but I'm curious what led you into your current role. 
So I think that when people hear that type of bio, they assume that somehow I was one of the those parents who had a child who was hard of hearing or deaf first and then went into the field. And for me, it was flipped. I was one of those kids that was very interested in in sign language when I was young, and that kind of motivated me to pursue something related to deaf people. I just was really interested in the communication piece and realized that there weren't really undergraduate programs in deaf ed. And so I went through the special ed path and then found my way through to a graduate program in deaf ed. And I was lucky because it was at the beginning of the out of trial approval of cochlear implants for children. Oh yeah, turning point. And I was in an area that was one of the original educational approved educational sites that you could only get a cochlear implant if you lived near a place where where you could get an education and have support from from specialized professionals and so it was just luck and the timing of it to be involved at that point and I liked working with children and you know and my early interests started with with appreciating the beauty of sign language and then as I learned about the science and the technology and the possibilities as we moved closer to newborn hearing screening finally being the standard of care, new opportunities opened for me. And so I went from classroom teacher to itinerant teacher and then was looking for more, more, more information and had the chance to work in a hospital setting and work with families at all different points in their journey, but really being one of the first people to interact with them after their child was identified as having hearing loss, which is a real unique and important kind of sacred almost position to be in and how you can influence the, the, that initial feeling and that initial moment with them. And, but I missed families. And so I was able to, there was a, a, there was a position open at Clark that coincidentally was around the corner from my apartment. And so I was lucky enough that they, they took me on and gave me time to learn how to run a program. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And so it's exciting here because every state is set up a little bit different, but the way it's set up in New York State and in New York City in particular, a lot of things are kind of contracted out to agencies where the municipal people are just kind of administering things. And so because of that, we're able to work with families, babies as young as three or four weeks of age, so, so at really early points in the early intervention system and kind of lead them through to understand what they can access and helping them to have high expectations. And really from those early moments on, we can really support them in figuring out what their goal is for their child and their family. That's so great. I think it's really, you hit on something there that's really important. And I know a lot of listeners are interested in working specifically with pediatrics. I am a pediatric audiologist myself, and I completely agree that those early moments with families where you're kind of the the person helping guide their boat, you know, you're one of the first members of that team they're going to be building over the next months and years of their child's life. It's so great that in your with your program and in your area, these families have access to professionals who 
understand the full potential that this child has that when parents can sometimes feel so lost in it, there's someone who says, we work with families, we work with kids, we know all of the potential your child has, let us help you on this journey that you're going on. So what a great community that you've established and helped grow in that area. Thank you. It's exciting in the sense that, you know, we we say that there's a point where parents are still kind of shell-shocked at having a baby and then having a baby and having to run to these appointments with specialists they'd never heard of before yeah. while they're figuring out how they're ever going to shower again. You know, that's <laughs> that's such a vulnerable period. Yeah. And so at the beginning, many of them don't necessarily believe whatever this is in front of them is going to work, but they believe that we believe it. And at the beginning, that's enough. That's a lifeline. Wow. Yeah. What a great way to put that. And how important professionals like early interventionists and teachers of the deaf and hard of hearing, that's their role here, right? It's so, so critical in those early stages, especially, but even into those first few years. So switching gears then, so you, you've you been in this role with Clark School and, or at least in the early intervention space all this time, no personal connection to the world of hearing loss or children who are deaf and hard of hearing, just a passion to serve that group of people. And then you have a child who has microtia and atresia, right? I do. So to give some context to that, I've been at Clark for 14 years. And just before, about a year or two before I came to Clark, I got married. And my husband is deaf, is a bilateral cochlear implant user. And we had our first child and who, who was eight months old when I started working at Clark. And we decided I had always been interested in adoption. And we talked about the different possibilities for how to grow our family. And so we ended up adopting from China. And so our second child has bilateral microtia atresia, but it wasn't a surprise. People are a little confused when I say my husband is deaf and has cochlear implants and my daughter has microtia atresia because <laughs> they try to figure that connection out. Yeah. What's the connection? Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So we try to jump in and explain that it's not genetically <laughs> related in any way. And so my path to being a parent is a little bit different than some other other families. But I would, I'll say that the interest that I had in how we as a field, as professionals, support children and families was kind of peaked for this population before I had my daughter. And so, but it made me realize that you shouldn't need 20 some odd years in the field to be able to effectively advocate for your child and have their needs met. And so I think that's where there is kind of this synergy in in both parts of my life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's so interesting because tonight our goal is obviously to talk more on microtia and atresia, but with your career and the work you've done, clearly there's like a lot of different topics we could get into. And I do think whether it's related to microtia and atresia or just hearing loss in general, I'm hoping a little bit later, we'll just talk to more in your experience the advice you would give to clinicians who are helping families along that journey or families who are listening in who have questions about how they can better support their children. I just think you have a really great perspective from there's like multiple aspects of how your perspective is really interesting here. One is just your career prior to having your child and then raising your child and then your new clinical perspective on children with microtia atresia. It's just so multi-layered. It's really, really interesting. Well, and it's interesting for me too, because there there are times where dealing with some of the bureaucracies around having children, you know, the educational systems. And I think, what on earth are they saying to other, like if they're saying this to me, 
<laughs> like, what is happening with families with limited English proficiency, with families yeah. who just trust that the person who thinks they're the head of the meeting has their child's best interest at heart or knows what they're talking about? So I find myself with lots of really interesting stories of how bureaucracies don't always support our kids in the best way. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like I definitely want you in the room if my child has an IEP meeting. Like, <laughs> we, we definitely want Meredith in the room for that conversation. I appreciate that. <laughs> I do think I was a frustrated lawyer in a past life or something, so that might be connected to... <laughs> That's where to... it comes from. <laughs> So then let's let's dive in a little bit on microtresia. Let's just assume someone listening in isn't as familiar with the condition. And I guess you could even start with just the the terminology, right? I mean, there's microtia, there's oral atresia. A lot of times people will use the term microtia atresia. So I'm just curious if you want to give us a little bit of a breakdown of the condition itself and maybe a little bit of the terminology and what that means. Sure. And and to make it even more confusing if you look on the CDC website for the conditions that they track like the different physical malformations. They use birth defects, which makes me cringe a little bit, but that's what their their site is called. They use microtia anosia. Got it. And so the microtia anosia piece is really, microtia literally means like little ear. So typically referring to the pinna being smaller than expected. And there are different grades of that. One is the mildest where there's, it's slightly smaller. It doesn't have all of the details of the a typical pinna all the way to four, which is a notion, meaning there's no outer ear at all. And three is the most common. And typically three people will describe as looking almost like a, a packing peanut. And so the microtia anosia really refers to no ear canal. And so they, they think of it that way. They don't, they don't seem to distinguish between atresia, which is that closed canal, often blocked by, by bone, and microtia, they think of it as degrees of microtia, and then the anosia piece would be if the canal is affected. From the CDC's point, and I think that's part of the confusion among all of us is, are we talking about an outer ear malformation, or are we talking about the atresia piece, which is often what really is creating the hearing loss? Yeah, and then I know sometimes I've heard there can just be a narrowing of the ear canal, at least, mm-hmm. unrelated to a congenital Right. Malformation, right? Like you could just have, I don't know, severe otitis sexterna, maybe it could cause a narrowing of the ear canal. So, how often are microtia and atresia happening together? Is it more often just microtia? Is it is it only anosia is going to result in atresia, or can you have some form of a developed outer ear but no ear canal at all? You can have a fully formed ear and no ear canal, which is rare. It's it's rare to not have microtia and just have atresia. And you can also have a degree of microtia with a tiny, narrow canal. And so if there's any combination, the most common is, is to have that grade three microtia, which looks like that packing peanut with mm-hmm. a closed ear canal. Sometimes it's hard to tell if the canal is actually fully closed. It can look like there's a canal opening, but it's so small, they can't really see into it. And so often, though, it could be pitted, meaning it doesn't go anywhere. It looks it. like there's a canal and then it and then it's almost like has it like a dead end, so to speak. And I've seen 
children who have clearly microtia atresia on one side and the other ear looks fully formed. And then when they do more assessment, they realize that the ear that looks fully formed actually has atresia as well. You know, and so those things happen. And so the, obviously the, the referrals to the right people after a, a baby is born, it's critical to make sure that there aren't assumptions made based on the initial appearance. That's a great point. I'm curious with these different degrees of microtia, I'm guessing there aren't degrees of a tree. Well, I guess maybe I'm thinking like there's either a patent ear canal or there isn't, right? Or maybe there could be different levels of narrowness of the ear canal. Right. So you'd think there would be. And I think that's where the confusion comes in about whether it's a stenotic canal, it's a tritic, so it's completely closed or it's open. But sometimes you don't know. And sometimes these kids have slightly unusual anatomy that really can't be seen initially, but they have, and microtia atresia is most likely to be unilateral. Bilateral happens, but it's much rarer. So there are these assumptions that it's unilateral and the other ear is fine, but sometimes it's not. It might have ear infections or fluid and neat tubes. There could be a conductive component because of the canal having a slightly different width or shape that's just not picked up on immediately because of the look of the ear and the assumptions that are made. So I think there's still a lot we don't know because it's such a small population that it's hard to get a critical mass of kids to get researchers interested. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. I'm also curious when it comes to middle ear development, are children who are born with microtia or atresia more likely to have underdeveloped ossicles? Is the tympanic membrane? I guess with atresia, that might be a different scenario, right? Because everything's closed. But with different levels of microtia, is there a lot of middle ear involvement usually? There would be. I think, again, it's about 500 or or even less babies are born with microtia atresia in the U.S. every year. And so... When you think about what that means, like how small that really is, it's hard to know because most children who are born have microtia atresia, not microtia like with a stenotic canal. So I I don't know that there's enough information for me to say, maybe for for an otologist at one of the, like a craniofacial clinic, but it's hard to know. And I think that for depending on the initial information families get, which can be really not what we would think of as best as best practice. Some of those kids who do have maybe like a milder microtia and maybe a narrow canal, they may never go to specialists as long, you know, unless language delays start or behavior problems start. If they seem to be just fine, often the medical professionals the family comes in contact with don't consider that to be a child with a hearing loss or at risk for hearing loss, and they don't get the same information and follow-up. That's really interesting. I mean, I do, I, I want to dig in a little bit to more of what that population looks like and what the diagnosis process is. Maybe before we get to that, if we want to talk about what the intervention options are. So let's, if you want to play out a scenario, a baby's born with the most typical, let's say, unilateral grade three microtia with a tree. You said that was probably the more more common one, right? Mm -hmm. 
what does that process usually look like? Previously, I was doing a lot of natural sleep ABRs for babies who referred on the newborn hearing screening. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a baby in the, it was a, it was a brief time. I didn't, and I guess with only 500 babies a year, it's not surprising. I didn't right. have a baby with my crochet <laughs> come through, but in that scenario, I would, you know, try to get bone conduction information on that side, try to get some masked information for that ear. And then what intervention options are we talking about with babies at this point at hopefully diagnosed by that three month mark? And we're thinking of intervention by six months. What does that look like for children in this scenario? Well, ideally or practically? (laughs) I guess um, maybe start with ideally and then give me what's what's really going on. So ideally, so with the, the updated JCIH recommendations in 2019, it's actually recommended that children who have an ear malformation like microtrechia skip screening altogether and go right to ABR. Okay. They should be, have diagnostic testing and that it can even happen as soon as like in the hospital while they're there and that they should immediately be referred to early intervention. Got it. I don't think that's happening. It's probably happening in some cases, but when you think about the fact that we, you know, I think many of us say the one of the weak links in the in the 136 model is like waiting for ear molds to come back. Sure. Absolutely. And the fear of overamplifying little babies because you're if you're going off of the ABR, it's not ex- really a, a hearing test per se. And so people want to be cautious and all of those things, right? But if you you can fit a baby shortly after birth, but that's probably not going to happen. You can fit a baby at a couple of weeks old with a bone conduction device on a soft band. And if they didn't have a hearing loss, it would be a headband with a funny box. Got You'd it. have to, for uh, if I put on that same type of device right now as a, as a person with normal hearing, it wouldn't bother my ears. I wouldn't notice it unless I plugged my ears, right? Sure. Because the vibration is so subtle. Mm-hmm. And so there's no, I think of the do no harm. There's no harm in amplifying early with bone conduction devices if you find out later maybe that the canal isn't closed. Because just as babies grow, if the the canal is stenotic but not closed, you might realize that it actually does go all the way through to an eardrum. And so you can make other decisions then. But babies can be fit that early. And in fact, the I'm going to get their name wrong, I feel like. Uh, so I forgive me anyone who's on this committee in advance. The North, I want to say it's the North America Bone con- bone conduction work group mm-hmm. that put out a paper in 2020 outlining kind of best practices in managing non surgically non surgical fitting of bone conduction devices for children, and so specifically talking about soft bands. And they say as young as two months. And when I was actually at a conference and said, "Well, why not younger?" Because we would really say for like 136 is almost 1346. It's, you know, to fit with amplification yeah, within a month yeah, yeah. of diagnostics. You can fit with amplification the same day a baby with microtia atresia is identified because you don't need to wait for the ear mold. True. Right. And the comment that the speaker gave back was we thought two months was reasonable in terms of the process of applying for insurance. And so that there isn't a reason it couldn't be younger other than they thought practically that might be the earliest. Sure, sure, sure. 
And so that's what we would want to see because it practically what often happens is that it takes much longer and parents are given much different advice from professionals, even those who work with children with hearing loss, about what the next steps are to follow up that are not consistent with the JCIH recommendations. And it leaves parents confused. So things like surgical repair of the ear, which some parents are interested in, the earliest you can do it is at the age of three, depending on which approach you might be taking. But it's expensive and often not covered by insurance. And so there are a lot of hurdles to overcome to get to that point. But birth to three is that critical language period. And so hoping that the child has an ear, like, you know, is able to get surgery for a fully formed ear three years or four years or seven years later, but not thinking about the immediacy of language access is, is, is a concern for me as an interventionist. Yeah. That makes sense. And if if you're with these families from that really early stage, it's really at the top of your mind. We're working now for a goal that's years from now. I'm curious. I I honestly haven't worked very much with bone conduction hearing aids in in my past, but with babies really sitting up at like five, six months, if a lot of their time is spent laying down, is placement of of the headband or I guess of the soft band different? Is it still in that kind of mastoid placement? And if so, are babies kind of rolling onto the device more? Or what, what's been your experience with that? Yeah. So so even for bilateral babies, because their little heads are, are really tiny. And so like at that early point, you want them to have access, like full access, consistent access to the optimal auditory signal, right? And so one at the very beginning is is okay because they're sleeping most of the day and they're on their back or being held in a certain way. And so what you'll often see is a baby with a soft band positioned in a way that the device is located around the forehead, right? So ideally it it. would be great to be on the mastoid because it's closer to the cochlea, but their heads are really tiny. So their forehead is really close to the cochlea too. And so that works. And then when they have more head control, they're sitting up more independently, that they're not always in that, like in a stroller, in a high chair, in a carrier or something like that. If it's a child who is bilateral microtresia, that's when we'll look to fit the second one. And for the first one, depending on the parents, they may keep it in the front. They may start to move it back a lot. It depends on just, I think, their lifestyle and how much downtime, meaning physically down, that child is. Because my daughter was 20 months old when she came home from China. And so she was well past that, always on her back or sure. her head she was supported always on the move. Right? Yeah. She, was, she was on the move. But when she fell asleep and, and she, she was bilateral, and so like, like she was knocking those things off all the time. And so there is... It's that risk of putting like expensive, delicate equipment on children. (laughs) You know, I can't tell you how many weird places we have found devices over the years. And so I think there is a kind of a, a weighing out of what is the benefit 
in certain situations and what's the drawback, what's the risk of losing something. You know, I think like just the way toddlers head sit in car seats is exactly where a bilateral Bajas would be sitting on the mastoid. And so if they fall asleep and you hear that whistling for the next hour when you're driving. (laughs) And my my daughter was actually really an amazing, has amazing auditory skills. And so if we tried to turn it off while she was sleeping, it woke her up. And then she would scream because she wanted to hear. And so, and so it really was just not a pleasant experience until she was a little older and she could turn off the Bajas herself. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I work mostly with kids with cochlear implants. And so the car, I talk to families all the time. The car is the no man's land. There is mm-hmm. no, no rules apply in the car. If you've got to take them off so they don't get thrown out a window, I think everybody understands. Yeah, it is crazy what kids can do. My, and, the, and my daughter is actually a little bit type A, which is good. And so... We had a really good run until she was about eight and was skiing and decided she got to the point where she felt confident enough to ski without them. And the sound was annoying when she was skiing. And so she took them off and put them in her pocket and lost them. Both of them. Oh, no. Thank goodness a month before the the expiration of the warranty. So we got them (laughs) replaced. But yeah, I was looking for like every previous version we had on the shelf that we had just not gotten rid of to see what worked to <laughs> we could get that that replacement in but i mean it, for as a as a parent practically speaking that's really stressful and that's one of those things also like if the minute i see a parent who has a child that's just gotten devices i look for the safety line and talk to them about it because often they're so overwhelmed when they're being dispensed equipment, they don't think about it. But I'm like, this is going to come out off so many times. And the safety line gives you a fighting chance of getting it before it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, you might, you're doing like the dive across the room to catch it or something. <laughs> and so just to be, you know, to be aware of that because it's a such a pain and it's so much stress and so many hurdles to replace devices that, yeah, we should bubble wrap them. Bubble wrap the kids, bubble wrap the devices. <laughs> bubble wrap all of it. I'll bubble wrap all of it. Speaking of the devices themselves, I'm curious if you could break down a little bit more for us the different intervention options for this kind of conductive hearing loss. So we know of bone conduction devices, but then within that category, there are so many subcategories, right? There's soft band, and then you kind of move on to a surgical option. And I know there's an abutment. And then I know there's also devices that don't have an abutment. Again, this is subcutaneous. Maybe this is like so out of my wheelhouse because I just don't (laughs) work in this population very much. Could you kind of just give us a quick breakdown of some of those options? Sure. So, so for, you know, under five, everything is non-surgical in, in the U S there are different criteria in Europe. And so everything is essentially using something to keep the bone conduction device in place. And so whether it's a soft band or one of the companies, you know, Cochlear has like the sound arc, which almost looks like like the attachment if you were wearing like sports glasses that have the line that goes around the back of your head. Yeah, I've seen it. It's like if you put your glasses on backwards, yeah, kind of yeah, rested yeah. them on your ears kind of thing. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so there are some kids who, who like that because there's no headband kind of thing that it's visible to other people. One of the companies has like an adhesive type of attachment where there's like kind of a connector with adhesive that goes along the mastoid and then you connect the device to that. And so they all kind of work the same way, right? They're, but we know just from 
other research and studies that that the best auditory access is really direct bone stimulation, and all of these are not doing that. And so you lose a little bit of sound. The FDA has uh, criteria about the, any of the surgical options. And so the earliest you're supposed to do it is five, but it's also based on skull thickness because of the way it's inserted. And if you do it when the skull's too thin, you run the risk of possibly fracturing the skull or the piece that's, that is put into the skull to keep it in place, getting kind of pushed out as the bone grows back. Oh, yikes. And so that either way, but there's a period typically of about four months if it's that abutment that you need implanted where it has to osseo-integrate before you can use it. Some of the newer devices are put in more like cochlear implants in terms of every, like receiver simulator kind of under the skin in a surgical procedure, and you wear a processor on the outside that connects through a magnet, that type of thing. And those technologies tend to address some of the issues that the others, that the other surgical options can't or have issues with. And so like the, some of the, the traditional abutment type of thing, like there's a lot of risk for infection. If you get the one with the magnet that can kind of connects to that abutment, the older style, like it's not as strong a connection. And so if you make it too strong, you can have skin breakdown. If you don't make it strong enough, it can get knocked off easily. And so, but these newer devices are using other technologies. And so they're, this is not my wheelhouse at all. But so, so someone will no doubt let you know that I can describe this possibly very wrong, but they're kind of doing, they're using this other technology to simulate the vibration. And so the fact that it's not actually vibration means that they're reducing some of that feedback issue that you get when you try to amplify high frequencies. Got it. So those have shown promise. And when you see the audiological results from the, you know, the the last four or five years that those devices have kind of come into the market, and you see that they're getting like that high frequency, like at 4,000, they're getting them up to like 10 dB, 15, where a Baja typically like you hit 25 and you're kind of starting to squeal. You have difficulty getting those voiceless high frequency consonants well amplified. And so it's really nice to see those, those happening. And they're, they're just more, uh, I think they're kind of nicer to look at for kids, like the abutment. It worked, it got you sound, but it felt a little strange. You had this kind of little snap on the, the side of your head. And if you, even if you cleaned it well, you ran the risk of infection. And so I think that as the FDA keeps lowering the age for these newer devices, more families will probably want to consider those because of the easier maintenance and the less medical risk and the greater auditory access it provides. So we'll see. It's exciting. But the thing is, and I go back to you because I've been all over the map in terms of settings and ages of kids and teenagers and young adults that I've worked with, but my heart's in that birth to five. Earliest, you can do surgery related to amplification for bone conduction devices is five. And so it's something to think about. But right now we need language. Yeah, absolutely. Access is so critical that early. So it sounds like there's a lot of different options that are starting to be more and more available. And I know that with that improved uh, frequency response, I guess, for the bone conduction device, it also, you're getting better access to those soft high frequency sounds. 
are you seeing a lot of mixed hearing losses in this population? Is it mostly just purely conductive, like total conductive hearing loss with with oral atresia, anosia kind of a situation? Or, I mean, I guess, is there risk for progression in those sensory neural thresholds over time? So it's an interesting question. Most of the, in my experience, most of the kids have conductive loss and often will just say like maximum conductive loss for convenience and, you know, the difficulty in testing children and the difficulty in testing an atritic ear and masking issues, you know, those types of things. And so it's usually strictly a conductive hearing loss, not always, but often it is because the inner ear and the outer ear form at different times. And so they're not, so like there being an issue with one is usually not related to an issue with the other, unless it's it's something that there's more craniofacial involvement, like a syndrome, where it could affect the cochlea, either by the nature of whatever the syndrome is, or just from the anatomy perspective. Got it, got it, got it. That makes sense. And in theory, I guess that someone who has a conductive hearing loss could have sensory neural hearing loss, like related to age or damage to their hearing from drugs or something like that. I haven't run into that per se, but it, like in, theoretically, it should be possible. You could have both, but not, I, I haven't run into it yet in terms of like profound deafness and, but you started with a conductive loss. Sure, sure, sure. And I know I've, I mean, again, not having had much experience, I do know that feedback can be such a persistent issue with bone conduction devices. So anything that can help combat that, I'm sure is a very appreciated feature. Yeah, yeah. And and the companies have done better at addressing that. The beauty of competition is that the companies try to do better. They try to have better features, including feedback controls and, and stuff like that. But there are things that come up. And, you know, I often when I'm if I'm presenting about like things to think about if you're working with families and I think about like just the getting a winter hat. You know, if mm. you if you have a child with microtia atresia and they're wearing their Baja and and personality wise, like my child was rigid, like she woke up and it went on and it was us at the beginning, but it was definitely her. So at times where it was below zero and we were like, listen, it's more important for your head to be warm. She was having none of it. (laughs) You know, she is like 100% committed. (laughs) She took it very literally in waking hours, you know. (laughs) And so for like three years, she had one hat that I look at pictures of it and we ended up losing it. And I, I cried when we lost it because it was the one hat that fit over the Bajas that didn't cause feedback. Wow. And I look at it like just before we lost it and I was afraid to wash it because I didn't want it to lose its shape in case it affected it. And man, that thing was dirty. I mean, like I'm sure people <laughs> were like, what is going on with that parent? Wash your child's hat. But those types of things like shouldn't be a big challenge. Wearing masks over the last couple of years, for someone who's using amplification and is bilateral, it's so much easier because she used her Bajas. She she just hooked the, kind of looped the mask around her Bajas and, and it was fine. But if they're, if they are not using amplification, like that constant reminder of like, how do we figure this out? My child doesn't have an ear to put the mask on. Yeah, that's a really great point. I saw some, I want to say a child with microtia atresia kind of had a 3D printed 
I saw this in somewhere online, like a 3D yeah. printed mask holder. That was like a oh, really in- awesome. inventive way to solve that problem. And there are different ways around it. It's funny because my daughter uses cochlear Bajas and she went from the five to the six and the profile of them are different. Like the six is smaller, but it's also the profile in terms of the way it connects is mm-hmm. closer to the connector on the soft band. And so that the loop from the mask didn't actually fit under it the way it did with the five and it made it whistle and so we had to we went through a lot of different scenarios to figure out how to make it possible for her to wear a mask and she what she needed to do for school initially anyway and so like I would sew buttons on and try to do it that way and she ended up using bobby pins and was fine with it and we knew which masks work best that gave her enough room to be able to tie the the mask loops but it's been rough. Yeah, that just speaks to the the forced ingenuity of parents of children who are deaf and hard of hearing. They just come up with the best things. When a, uh, there's a parent of a, a child who has a cochlear implant and the companies d- hadn't designed a way for her to maintain her processor at her quail site in a way that clipped into her hair really well. And so she just went about it on her own, designed and 3D printed, and now she's running a total shop where she you know sells these ci retention solutions hair clips out of out of necessity they needed a solution and they came up with it with themselves well it's interesting because what i see a lot of parents doing is looking on like etsy or something like that to get more interesting soft bands than the ones that the companies make and the thing that always makes me nervous is that they don't realize that the soft band is actually part of the medical device like that it's gone through testing it has to be approved whatever and so the thing you're getting off of etsy may not have tight enough elasticity or whatever to get the contact you need for the cochlea to be stimulated with the vibration and so i always tell parents if you're going to do that, if you're going to buy something from Etsy, before you use it, go to your audiologist and have them test your child in the booth using it. That's a great point. That's a really, really good point. We actually did that with the, with the white hat that was like gray by the time we lost it. We did that. We were like, how does wearing this hat over her Bajas affect what she's hearing? And we, I don't know, I think it was like, she lost like 20 dB, 25 dB maybe with this hat on. But I was like, that's a good trade-off. Like if it's that cold out that she's got to have something, something. (laughs) you know, but we went in and checked and I I really advise parents to not, to, to recognize that the soft band is a medical component that has gone through testing and you want it tight enough to maintain that contact in whatever bony area you're putting it. Otherwise, it's it's not going to give your child the auditory access they need. Yeah. I just thought of a very random question. This might be a dumb question, but I have to ask this. Yeah. So normally when we think of feedback with a hearing aid user, a lot of times it's at a frequency where most, you know, high frequency hearing losses, the person, the, the listener at least, wouldn't even realize the feedback was occurring, right? But for a child with a bone-anchored hearing aid, they probably have normal high-frequency hearing. Does it get picked up in a way by the microphone that it also bothers the person with the bone conduction device? They definitely know it's there. They they know that it's there. And you'll see them naturally just learn. The, the way many young children who use hearing aids do, where like they'll check it by touching it, check to see if it's working by touching it to get the feedback. Yeah. And so that they do, they typically do have normal cochlear function and so they 
they once they have access with the bone conduction aid, their responses are typically within normal limits. You know, they have the same issues as other people with hearing loss in terms of like the problems with background noise and distance and things like that. But in terms of access, they have access across frequencies in most cases. Got it. Sort of thinking about parent ingenuity and then thinking of that more from like an early intervention or this, this question might be something you haven't interacted with because I'm thinking more even at like the school age level, but specifically a child who's unilateral with their microtia atresia. And we think about, you know, an FM system or some kind of system in school to give them better access to the teacher. I mean, my thought would be if you have them set up with some kind of FM system that is streamed directly to their bone conduction device, technically both ears are going to receive that information due to zero dB interaural attenuation that we have from our skull. Is that true? Is that kind of the mentality when it comes to using an FM system for kids who have microtia atresia? So, I, I mean, I think the general recommendations in terms of the access that whether it's like kind of an FM router system or remote mic use, I think those general recommendations are, are the same. I think that similar to other kids with unilateral hearing loss, there are times where what should work in theory isn't what works for that child, whether they're getting some kind of distortion or what have you. And I think that's where a really good audiologist is between your primary and educational audiologist. If you're some, if you're in a school or district that is using one to try to figure out what the best setup is for that child. How do they hear the best? What's going to be used the most? My, my daughter is now in seventh grade. And so we're dealing with the non-compliance <laughs> issues. <laughs> So, so I realize there are, are a lot of things that that go into that, and sometimes like you need really creative people on your child's team who will try, who won't just assume that the recommendations they gave to five other children are the same for your child, because it might not be. And then sometimes you'll hear about kids who are using some type of like FM Roger on their on their quote unquote good ear. As to give them better access to the teacher as opposed to, you know, so I think there's so many different configurations that it is individual, but I think the same, some of the same conditions that make listening for someone with unilateral sensory neural hearing loss difficult occur for children with microtia atresia. And often people see it as behavior as opposed to hearing. Absolutely. I see a fair a fair bit of children with single-sided deafness. And I mean, the impacts to localization and understanding and noise, I mean, 100% we get reports of behavioral problems that aren't actually behavioral problems. But I think it also, I think that a similar concept applies to, you know, maybe this child gets a cochlear implant, but what is the best in school option for access to the teacher. I don't want to just stream it to your implant. I want your normal ear to also get access to that teacher. So I think, yeah, it's important to have a good team. Yeah. A lot of times we don't, we're not doing it consciously, but we're really expecting the child to somehow tell us what they need. But we actually have to teach them what good hearing is, what good auditory access is, so that they know how to advocate when it's not there. That's a great point. You that's know? a really good that's a good really good way to describe that hopefully, you know, developmental aspect of advocacy that they need to understand what good access is if they're going to be able to advocate for it. That's a great insight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to be used to something being present and expect that it's just there for you to be able to stand up for yourself, especially to adults 
when it's taken away. So if the lights were off and the teacher started teaching, someone would say, hey, the lights are off. I can't see the board. Right. But if everyone just acts, if, if a child is used to having inconsistent access or a poor signal, they don't know that what they're hearing is any different than anyone else, really. Right. They just think they're missing something or they tune out. And so, yeah, self-advocacy is a, f- interesting, is a whole other interesting topic related to the way we unintentionally, intentionally put the responsibility on like a five or six or seven-year-old to advocate for themselves for something we're responsible for teaching them. That is a really great point. I think on, we're kind of coming up towards the end of our time, but I did want give, to like, give you an opportunity. I think that might be something if you want to share a little bit more on or just kind of like I was saying earlier, you just have such a really multi-layered and really insightful perspective on all of these different topics that we've talked about. So there's a lot of students who listen to this podcast, audiology and speech students. So I'd be curious what advice you would give them when it comes to working in this space, whether it's an early intervention perspective or early intervention specifically with atresia, just what would be kind of an important, there's been a lot of important nuggets throughout our conversation, but I'm wondering if there's anything that you just feel like is a really important thing to share with that group or maybe clinicians who are new to this, to this world of clinical care. For any of us working with families, realizing how vulnerable they are, how new this is, it's not something they expected or went to school for. They're, they're trying to understand it and you do have to repeat things more than once you do you can't assume i can't tell you how many audiologists over the years have said i told but i told them that it's like well it's kind of like teaching it's like if you're teaching and no one's learning are you teaching if you're counseling and advising and the parent has shut down you're kind of talking to yourself yeah you know and so realizing that There are very few parents who don't want the best for their child and their child to become happy, healthy, independent, successful adults. And if they're making decisions that seem to go against what you think, one is to step back and think about that. Like, do they have the information, right? Because most parents, if they have the information to do something to help their child will, and if they don't, if they're not either... Is there a barrier that you can help them with, or is it something that they're choosing to do something else and it's their right to, you know? To me, I think particularly in that early intervention space or for late identified kids, you know, whose family miss early intervention and they've gotten no support, it's such a learning process for families that making assumptions based on the last time you talk to them will leave them without the support from you that they need because they they need that information, but they can't process it any sooner. And they need as much accurate information. Unbiased information is kind of a, a weird thing because it's really hard to be unbiased, but accurate information so that they can make those decisions and kind of providing them with the, the support. And, you know, I say always say with kids with microtia atresia, the parents are often self-diagnosing in the delivery room or in the like kind of recovery while they're waiting to go to a room. They're Googling on their phones. Sure. Often they're meeting people who have no idea. ENTs have told parents that, don't worry, I think it'll unfold. 
Oh, interesting. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, oh where goodness. did you graduate in your class? Like, how does an ENT not, even if they haven't seen it, how how do you not know that an ear doesn't unfold? <laughs> like, wow, that's like, really interesting. It's oh kind my of scary. God. And yeah. so parents are often, their heads are reeling before newborn hearing, the newborn hearing screener comes in or, or what have you. They're looking for information and they don't ever have that period of forgetting right? Like if a baby fails newborn hearing screening, parents can still can kind of be in denial about what's going to happen at that follow-up testing, right? They have that period of time. This family, every time they look at the baby, they're reminded. It's, it's something that's there and they have people around them who are not giving them accurate information. And by the time they get to you, it has been traumatic. Yeah. Wow. That's a, re- that's a really great insight and a really good reminder. And you know, how you approach counseling in this situation has to be so different. You're exactly right. There's there's a completely a completely different history this family has gone through in just those couple months before they get to you as a clinician. And it's so important to be mindful of that. It is. And in terms of people, you know, having fidelity to their to their role and, and the work they do. Other than that, the, probably the single biggest thing is to con- try to connect them with other families or other resources, other parents who get it. Often parents will say that that was what the the lifeline at the beginning was just finding another parent who had, who had been there who could help guide them a little bit to next steps because they're getting they're even the in, early interventionists like early interventionists in general like hearing loss is a small part of what an early intervention system deals with let alone microtresia and so trying to connect them with other families so that they can develop a new normal, a new safety net, you know, a new community is really critical for their emotional health as they start this very like lifelong process. Wow. That's, that's really, really helpful information. I got to ask you one more thing and then I guess we'll kind of wrap up with, with that in mind. So you gave us a really great kind of philosophical counseling piece of information to take into appointments working with families and with children who have microtia and atresia. But from a parent's perspective, other than the retention clip, which I do think is really critical, what other hack for like families of kids with bone conduction devices do you wish audiologists or early interventionists knew to be sharing with families to say, this is that thing that families don't know about, but they need to know it exists. Or, you know, this is the tip that could be so helpful. What, what do you have for that one? A thing that comes up a lot is bike helmets. <laughs> You know, like it's what it does, yeah. And I have these pictures now saved in a folder on my phone because there are a couple of like microtia parent groups on mm-hmm. Facebook, and someone will say, "We can't find one that works with their with their device. What do we do?" And so I now have the pictures and the company, but you know, looking for those almost old fashioned cut helmets that sit up a little higher that typically you can kind of maneuver the Bajas if they're wearing, assuming they're wearing them along the mastoid so that it doesn't feed back. We ended up having to do that for a number of years when my daughter was skiing and I kind of had to balance that. Okay, what's the risk of her getting hurt wearing a bike helmet instead of a ski helmet? Yeah. What kind of a a bad parent am I taking that risk? And then, but she would not ski without wearing amplification. And she she really doesn't understand how anyone could consider 
not being bilaterally amplified if you have bilateral microtresia. And so I, I like I had to take the risk and use that bike helmet until her, she just grew enough that she could use a traditional ski helmet if we took the pads out of the ear area. Got that it. was fine. But the bike helmet is definitely one of those things that comes up a lot. We also didn't talk about kind of ear reconstruction and the, you know, some of the considerations, but one of the things is that some of the plastic surgeons advise not getting girls' ears pierced if you're considering reconstruction because of what they want to use the cartilage your child does have in terms of the reconstruction. And so like there are little thing little things like that. Yeah, that is, that does seem important to know. That's that goes beyond a tip. That's like, you need to know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing parents ask a lot, like, how will I know if my child has an ear infection? <laughs> Which is a good, you know. It, it, yeah, that's a great like, one. Well, you know, it, it's it's kind of a differential diagnosis, you know, in terms of like they're running a fever, they're pulling on their ear. They can get ear infections if they have a middle ear space, but most children haven't had imaging to know. And so it's kind of a process of elimination. Yeah. Interesting. Well, there's so many things here that we <laughs> we're just now learning about right at the end of our time. <laughs> but I don't want to keep you too late. Thank you again for joining me. You have a lot of stuff going on this year. Do you want to give the listeners a quick breakdown of, of where they can find you? Maybe if they have any questions, if they want to connect with you, or if they want to just tune into another one of your amazing talks or the kind of projects you're working on? Thank you. So definitely anyone is free to, to reach me here at Clark. My, my email is M Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, at clarkschools.org, C-L-A-R-K-E-S-C-H-O-O-L-S.org. And so I'd love to hear from other parents or professionals. I'm also going to be presenting at the Eddy Conference in March in Cincinnati on microtia atresia. And so hopefully I'll get a chance to meet more parents there. And I'm I'm co-chair. I'm not talking about my crochet atresia, but I'm co-chairing the Children's Hearing Institute's controversial issues in pediatric audiology on March 23rd and 24th. It's virtual in. It's from New York City, but it's a virtual conference this year. So hopefully, people can kind of tune in to to hear some of the amazing speakers we have lined up. One of one of UNC's own uh, Dr. Lisa Parks going to be talking on unilateral hearing loss and cochlear implants. Yes, I'm very very excited to to hear that. You know, you such a great team at UNC, and so there are so many topics we could have just heard two days of of UNC people. Uh, you know, because it's like how do you, they're just great people there, and so in addition to work and kids, I'm I'm taking two two courses this semester. And so I'm a little bit more scattered. <laughs> the next three months are <laughs> going to go busy, really quickly. busy year for you. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I keep thinking I'm going to so, pare down and then something comes up that just sounds too good. Yeah. To... You just got to make it the summertime. Exactly. That's my goal. <laughs> well, it's really been so fantastic to have you. I, I'm so grateful that you took the time and thank you for sharing your email for people who have any other questions, but it's been a great night. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R. E-A-R.